Good morning, Grace family. It's always amazing to be with all of you. And today is a special Sunday. I will be preaching from my new large print Bible. I love this Bible. I've officially become an old man. And I wholeheartedly, partially embrace that. And happy graduation to all of you that recently graduated. That's a tremendous accomplishment. Uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness, giving us life. May we leave today change, uh, seeing your son all the more clearly, having encountered him here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, speaking of getting old, if I could take a moment to get nostalgic with you uh, for a second, I think the 80s was the greatest decade of my lifetime. And if you didn't grow up in the 80s, I'm sorry, you just missed out. Man, the style, the music, the Lakers playing in the finals every year, it was great. Another part why I love the 80s was it's really a golden age for movies. And there's just this long list of classics that I still watch, rewatch, and think about. I'll name only a couple, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Goonies. If you remember The Goonies, it really encapsulates what it is to be a child getting together with your friends, going up in the attic, rummaging through a bunch of things, going out on an adventure on your bikes, constantly insulting one another. It's wonderful, wonderful. Oh, that was my childhood, yeah. Uh, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, I mean, Indiana Jones made archeology span look interesting. I mean, that's an amazing feat by itself. So again, th these movies really uplifted my childhood and uh, I still think about them from time to time. I remember I would spend all day running in my uncle's backyard, looking for buried treasure, going on my own adventures, asking my friends to come along for the ride. It really shaped uh, my imagination and who I am today. And you know what those movies have in common? They're people out looking for treasure, people out looking for something valuable. <sighs> And as fun as those adventures were, the gospel actually subverts this treasure hunting theme, meaning that the gospel isn't us looking for something valuable or looking for treasure, but the treasure seeking and finding us. We're the ones that are lost and need finding, as that it turns out, this is the greatest adventure in human history. In our passage today, a well-known story, a story of Zacchaeus, who was lost but was found by Jesus. It's a beautiful illustration of how the outcasts of society can receive the gospel. And more importantly, it shows explicitly the mission of Christ and that he is a savior seeking to save the lost. He's a savior seeking to save sinners. And if you haven't already, please turn your Bibles to Luke 19. Our passage is verses 1 through 10, and let us read together, starting in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. 
He has gone to the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Okay, so some context here. This context, the context, this, uh, the, continues this long account of Jesus and his journey to Jerusalem, uh, where it's going to be the climax of his earthly ministry. So here, Roman occupation of Israel involved not just military presence, but also Roman taxation. And tax collectors were required to collect a certain amount, and whatever they keep beyond that, they were, uh, whatever they collected beyond that, they were allowed to keep. Now, there are several stories about tax collectors throughout the Gospel of Luke, and here we have Zacchaeus. So let, let's get it more clo- closely into the passage. So verse 1, uh, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. So here in only a couple of verses, Luke mentions the person's name, Zacchaeus, his profession, a chief tax collector, and his social status, that he was rich. So he had advanced status in one sense in that he was rich, but he was outcast in another sense in that he was a tax collector. And not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. All these other stories of tax collectors were just ordinary tax collectors. Now, a chief tax collector makes him an entire region administrator. In this case, it was Jericho. So he was responsible for organizing that region's collection, and he took a cut from that labor. So he wasn't just a tax collector, but he was in charge of other tax collectors. Historically speaking, the nature and structure of this job of being a chief tax collector, sometimes the Romans would sell contracts where taxes were collected, like tolls and tariffs and customs, to the highest bidder for a fixed income. And then the person could charge more than that for profit. Or it could be that Zacchaeus was just really good at his job and he was promoted to that position. Regardless, he's in this position, however he got there, chief tax collector. And he was also rich. Now, partly that's on a legitimate basis because he had a job and Rome compensated for it. But also for an illegitimate basis because he extorted people through heavy taxation, heavy and unfair taxation. Because Zacchaeus had access to Roman thugs He used them as muscle to coerce whatever he wanted out of the people. He weaponized the government for his own ends. So there's really two reasons why he was hated. That he collaborated with the Romans, and two, he was dishonest and unfair in his tax collecting. So there's nothing but animosity here for him in the Jewish uh, community and culture. So he's aiding the occupying, pagan, idolatrous Roman Empire. He was a traitor to his own people. He wasn't allowed in the synagogue. People weren't allowed to interact with them. If you remember about a month ago, uh, Kenny preached on uh, the Pharisee and tax collector back in chapter 18. He did some background work for us. I'll recall a couple examples. If you remember, if you were a beggar, uh, you weren't allowed to receive alms or charity from a tax collector. So forget the saying, hey, beggars can't be choosers. It's like, whoa, tax collector, hey, no thank you. I want your dirty money. That'd actually be a pretty funny skit for kids, if, if you think about it. Another example that, that Kenny brought out was, the, um, what was the other example? I'm 
blanking out now. Give me a second. Oh, yes. Lying is a sin, but they made provisions that you could actually lie to a tax collector. It's like, oh, it's all right. You get a free pass if it's a tax collector. I mean, think, think about kind of this, uh, how they viewed taxes. They just give you a window into, into their world. And uh, Zacchaeus here was isolated, cut from the community. Uh, the people around, the only people he could hang out with were other rejects and outcasts from society. Uh, and those were exactly the type of people Jesus spent time with, which caused him problems in his ministry. Back in Luke 7, 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So here in the next verse, we see Zacchaeus wanting to see Jesus because there was a crowd gathering, but he was too short to look over him. Now that's what the text explicitly says, but what it doesn't say that the crowd also didn't make room for him either. It wouldn't cost them anything to scoot aside because they could have seen over him since he was short. But this was also another example of how he was ostracized from the community. So we're in verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So it appears here that, uh, that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus physically. He was curious. He wanted to know who this person was, and he wanted a good vantage point. Uh, but beyond the text, we could only imagine what drove him to want to see this Jesus. I mean, think for a moment of Zacchaeus' uh, situation within his community. He's already despised by his own people. And it wasn't like the Ro- he was friends with the Romans. They probably looked at him as a scoundrel, too. Oh, look at this guy willing to sell out his own people. Whatever. He's good for... Uh, a source of revenue. It wasn't like he, they were inviting him to ball games and barbecues either. So here he was, probably lonely. So then why would you pursue a career in tax collecting to the point where you're a chief tax collector? Well, maybe he pursued this career out of self-preservation. Here the Romans came, taking over. Maybe he thought in his mind, he said, hey, either my stuff is going to get taken or I'm the one taking the stuff. So he chose the latter. Maybe after some time, the money didn't fulfill him like it thought it would. Maybe going outside, the glares of the people he kept stealing from got to him. Maybe the glares of their children. He couldn't go outside without being recognized as a scoundrel. And how he was going to get out of this life anyway? It's not like he could quit his job and the community would just simply welcome back in. He was taking uh, their money probably for several years. So what to do? This is probably why he was interested in Jesus. He heard the stories of Jesus. I mean, that's why there was a crowd gathered, because they were hearing stories of Jesus. Perhaps he heard the story back in chapter 5 of Levi, where he says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the righteous, 
not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here, more, more than that, maybe he had heard other stories. He had other stories like Jesus forgiving the sinful woman who used an alabaster flask of ointment to anoint him and cried on his feet and used her hair to wipe out the tears. Maybe he had heard the story of Jesus calming the storms and rebuking the wind. Maybe he had heard the story of Jesus healing a man with a demon and casting it out. And the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people on meager resources and healing a woman on the Sabbath, getting a bunch of flack for that and turning around and healing a man on the Sabbath. Maybe he heard these stories and he came to realize, hey, maybe there is a way out of this tangled mess of a life that I've gotten myself into. Maybe this Jesus could offer me that. And in verse 4, so he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now looking at the verbs of of, of this verse here, he ran, he climbed, because he wanted to see. You know, on the one hand, there's a complete lack of decorum and dignity in a man of his position. If you're trying to gain honor, running ahead of a crowd, climbing up a tree and looking through leaves isn't, isn't a way to do it. He's acting like a teenager wanting to see his favorite band. On the other hand, there's some humility here behind this lack of protocol. And Zacchaeus didn't care about appearances. He was after something more precious to him, namely wanting to see Jesus. Furthermore, I already mentioned it was hard for him to show himself in public, but he did it anyway. So there's a sense of childlike delight and humor here in this verse, seeing a man of Zacchaeus and his stature behaving this way. In verse 5, here's the key. And when Jesus came to this place and he looked up and and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now this reveals the sovereignty of Jesus. Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. They never met before, yet he still knew him. And Zacchaeus, was, he was just another bystander in this huge crowd. And Jesus took the initiative to engage Zacchaeus in a very deeply and personal way. And why was it necessary to go to Zacchaeus' house? Well, that's not stated in the text, but given the crowd's reaction, it might be that it's a chance for Jesus to, again, underscore the nature of his mission. And I also believe it was just time for Zacchaeus. It was just time for him to be saved. And here in verse 6, so he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. So here, Jesus commands him to hurry. Zacchaeus responds in like kind and eagerness and even receives him joyfully. There's something about the presence of God that gladdens the heart. And this would be exciting for anybody in the city of Jericho, but for a tax collector to be singled out in this way is remarkable. And look at how the crowd reacts here in verse 7. And when they, all, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, grumbling is pretty much always a negative concept in the New Testament. The complaint about Jesus staying with sinners shows that the crowd had learned very little about Jesus' ministry. They heard about the highlights of his ministry. They conveniently forgot that these are exactly the type of people that he is seeking out. Do we ignore certain parts of Jesus for convenience? And notice here, 
the all that complained, everybody felt that way. And this descriptive phrase, a sinner, contributed to Zacchaeus, it's emphatic. A sinner, not just like, oh, well, yeah, he's kind of a bad guy. No, like, this is a bad dude. So being ostracized was used as a deterrent for social interaction. So cancel culture is nothing new. I mean, it's been digitized, but it's been around for a while. And to be quite honest, I don't blame these people for feeling that way. If somebody had been ripping me off year after year after year, well, you know what? I might not think too kindly of that person. And then to have Jesus come and show that person attention, I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can go hang out with that guy? Oh, come on, Jesus. So I feel the crowd. I, I picture myself in there grumbling too. Why hang out with that dude? But Jesus does this consistently throughout his ministry. He violates the established traditions of the Pharisees, cultural norms and expectations. Now here in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And notice Zacchaeus says half of my goods. He doesn't say half of my income, so he's even willing to use his property to help others, not simply his, his income. He's going beyond that. Okay, I have to get into some of the Greek translation here. I typically don't like to do that for two reasons. One, I barely passed Moyer Hubbard's second year Greek class. Okay, and that was the last class I needed to graduate undergrad. Man, I was sweating bullets, man. I was, I was so stressed out in that class. If I had to memorize another Greek paradigm, I would have just drove off a cliff. <laughs> and then, you know, it was so stressful because grades aren't posted till after graduation ceremony. That always, you know, frustrated me. I was like hitting the refresh button online and hoping I didn't have to moonwalk back uh, uh, the graduation ceremony. And then finally they posted, it's like, yes! C's get degrees, baby. Thanks, Mo Are you here, Moyer? Maybe a second. Oh, thank you. I'm here because I passed your street guy. Thank you. I would not be here if it wasn't for that man. I would have offered a bribe, but I didn't have any money because I was a poor college student. So, so I didn't bribe him. Second reason is I don't want to get too academic. I'm here to preach a sermon, not present a paper. So, um, but I do feel uh, this is actually warranted and maybe... Moira could check me on this. Um, so look at the phrase, I, ha I give to the poor. Now it's interesting because some translations translates it present tense. Other translations translates it future tense. So for example, the ESV, which I'm reading out of, NIV, New King James, those translates that present tense. The NASB, 95 edition, New Living Translation, translates it future tense. So here, what's going on? What's the difference with the tenses and why is it important? Well, the reason why it's important, it could actually change the interpretation of this passage. That Greek word give is actually in present tense. But if it's a simple present, then Zacchaeus is saying, it is my custom to give. It is my custom to give, to give back. Uh, so if this is true, then Zacchaeus is looking to Jesus for validation of himself as a good person in the community, uh, maybe to show that he's not the scoundrel that everybody thinks he is. So Zacchaeus here is seeking self-justification. Uh, but there's something you have to know about Greek. Greek tenses are way more fluid than they are English tenses. It's more about aspect than it is about time. And since we're in such a time-oriented culture, it's hard to think outside of the, under anything other than linearly. 
Uh, so Greek has this concept called a futuristic present, uh, which means I am going to give and I'm going to pay back, uh, which I believe is a more accurate interpretation of this passage because Zacchaeus's ethical decision comes from being transformed by his encounter with Jesus. So if the first option is true, it's a simple present. He's this righteous man on the defensive, recalling his good deeds to show that he's been misunderstood. And if he's misunderstood, it really undermines verse 10 where Jesus says so that he was lost and he's seeking to save him. So this leads uh, me to believe the verse is more about future resolve, not present behavior. It presumes a change in heart here. So this futuristic uh, present shows Zacchaeus' determination to see this through. And let's be clear, Zacchaeus is not some misunderstood righteous dude. He put himself in this situation. Whether he bought a contract from Rome or he was promoted to the position, he's the one that pursued this career of taxation and extorting his own people. He put himself here. He actually deserved a lot of the hate that was directed at his way. And here, this conditional clause, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, this conditional clause actually can be translated from whomever I have wrongfully defrauded. So it doesn't put the defrauding in doubt, but actually extends it. No doubt I have defrauded anybody, and I plan to pay back everybody. And here, this fourfold, fourfold, this self-levied penalty, where is he getting this from? He, he didn't pull it out of the air. You know, the interesting thing about this, so in Judaism, in the Old Testament, for lesser uh, severe penalties, if, for example, if you stole an animal from your neighbor and you give it back, you need to tack on 20% uh, in case there's some opportunity cost that's been missed. But for more severe situations, let's say you stole an animal from a neighbor and it dies in your possession, or you stole an animal from your neighbor and you sell it off and keep the proceeds, well, that requires you pay back fourfold. It's the highest penalty possible. And if you remember uh, in the Old Testament, the prophet Nathan, when he confronts King David about his adultery with Bathsheba, he tells this story of a rich man basically ripping off a poor man. And rightfully so, David was uh, angered by this and says this man has to pay fourfold, not realizing Nathan's talking about himself. So what fourfold really means is it's just the highest penalty possible. So Zacchaeus, he doesn't try to justify himself here. He doesn't try to figure out what level of extortion he committed and what percentage to give back. He owned all of it. It's an omission of complete guilt. Now, just play out this scene in your mind. This isn't a parable. This is a real story and a real person in a real place with real money. He's planning to pay back everybody he's ripped off at 400%. That's crazy. But Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus has led to a change in how he handles money. From taking advantage to, uh, of people now to serving people. And you know, on another level... One of the most painful things we could do in a relationship is to commit a wrong and pretend it didn't happen or that it didn't cause any damage or pain. And this blindness could build up resentment and eat away at relationships. Admitting wrong, asking for forgiveness, and trying to make restitution opens up the possibility of a fresh start, restoration, and repairing the relationship. 
So Zacchaeus becomes an example of not simply how to handle money, but also how to seek restoration from those he has wronged and trying to make things right. And we see Jesus commending Zacchaeus for his desire to make restitution here in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Again, the signal today shows a dramatic change that's taken place in that, that day, in that moment. It didn't happen in the past. You know, what's interesting, there's no discussion here of the conversation that Jesus and Zacchaeus had, which is interesting. I don't know why Luke, Luke left it out, but he did. But whatever the content of that conversation was, it shows the immediate availability of the promise of salvation. Another example of this immediate availability of salvation is uh, all the way at the end of Luke, on the cross, Jesus dying on the cross besides two criminals. Chapter 23, one of the criminals who were hung railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do not fear God since you are under, are you not under the same sentence of condemnation? And here, here's the key here. And we indeed justly For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Again, this admission of guilt. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So both the criminal on the cross and Zacchaeus admitted guilt without qualification. It's a precondition to salvation. You need to know that you're a guilty sinner before you know you need a savior. It's not external factors that determine our standing with God. It's not the system or our upbringing. Although those things are influential and significant, they are not determinative in our standing with God. It's an internal fallen state of sinfulness that's universally true of everyone. So we need to take up personal responsibility, acknowledging our sinful state and our complete hopelessness to save ourselves. So Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus in the third person because it's not a private conversation that they're having, but a confrontation with the crowd. Earlier, they were grumbling because Jesus was giving Zacchaeus all this attention. While Zacchaeus was not accepted by the crowd, he discovered the acceptance of God. And the acceptance of God had given him what he sought in vain for years through wealth. The compulsive drive to make money is gone. And Zacchaeus was an oppressor of his own people. And here Jesus comes and saves an oppressor. How's that for subverting expectations? And Zacchaeus was a man of enormous wealth, yet he was lost. And there are people like this all over the world. People of influence, authority, wealth who are lost. And Jesus came and f- to find those who are lost. And here in verse 10, we have his mission statement. In verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So true faith results in transformation. Now, it isn't just about the money. Transformation hits at the core of your dominant sin category. For Zacchaeus, it was money and extortion, but when he opened his heart to Jesus, he he started opening his heart to the needs of others and to the poor. And there are other categories of sin. We have to surrender to Jesus. For somebody else, it might be something else. 
It could be anger, promiscuity, homosexuality, covetousness, malice, arrogance, greed, whatever. But when true salvation comes, it strikes a death blow at the core of your wickedness, of our wickedness. And Zacchaeus' life is an example. No longer was he conformed to the world's value system, but he was transformed by the renewing of his mind, now able to discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, the sequence of this story may unintentionally mislead a reader to infer that salvation comes as a result of good works or the promise of good works in the future. But notice, it wasn't until Jesus invited Zacchaeus to dine with him that compelled him to repentance. Now, dining in that culture was very intimate. And let's be clear, Jesus was the one that initiated the contact and brought salvation. Jesus is the ultimate subject of this story. He is the one that makes the gospel possible. This is irresistible grace. So we're through the text. Uh, What about implications? So implications. So I have three because that's, again, all I can handle. First, we want to see Jesus as our Savior. See Jesus as our Savior. Second, scheme to bless others. Now, there's my admission of guilt. Totally stole this from Fred Sanders. Finally, see Jesus as our treasure. I'm going to go over these again. So, see Jesus as our Savior. Whom does Jesus save? Well, he saves the lost, the retrobates with dubious reputations could be a part of the community of believers when they place their faith in Christ and repent. And Jesus takes the initiative, invites himself to the house of Zacchaeus, and he's seeking to to save the lost, showing the universality of the gospel offered to tax collectors and sinners. He interacts with non-believers. He doesn't isolate himself from them, and he also doesn't affirm their sin. He's very clear that repentance is required. He doesn't try to make it comfortable for them. The gospel, the only way you could receive forgiveness is by asking for forgiveness, placing your faith on the finished work of Christ, repenting of your sins, committing your lives in love and service to him. Then you are imputed the righteousness of Christ. And because of this alien righteousness, we have a right standing with God. We are reconciled to the Father. Then we are no longer strangers and aliens. We are fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. And our sins have been washed in our white as snow. And who could receive this precious gift, this gift of eternal life? Whoever. Look back at the previous passage. The, co- the connection there is this geographical marker of Jericho, the blind man in chapter 18, verse 35 that Randy preached on last week. The blind man cries out to see Jesus while the short man must work his way through the crowd, climb up the tree to see Jesus. Jesus meets them both. And although in each case people tried to stop them or complained about it, Jesus still met them, and they received Christ. And Zacchaeus here and the blind man were both longing to, to, to want to see who this person was. And there's a difference there in their stories, though. Whereas the blind man had to cry out to get Jesus' attention, here Jesus took the initiative and found Zacchaeus. The blind man was lost in blindness and poverty, and here Zacchaeus was lost in corruption and wealth. Two people from opposite ends of the economic spectrum, yet both were outcasts and both were completely dependent on God. If you remember a while back, Rob Lister talked about childlike faith, 
which means that we must acknowledge our complete dependence on God. We bring nothing to the table but filthy rags. And Zacchaeus and the blind man offered what little they had. And here, they acknowledge their dependence, both of them. So whoever could be saved, think of just the book of Luke. Just the book of Luke. Back in chapter 14, the parable of the, bank, uh, the great banquet. And he says to his servant, go out quickly to the streets, the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, the cripple, the blind, and the lame. Back in Luke 15, you had the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost sons. Here, Christ seeking to save the lost theme again. In chapter 16, you had the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, poor and destitute, died, and he was the one that went to heaven. The rich man went to Hades. In chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee looked down in contempt of other people, enjoying his elite status. And it was the tax collector who couldn't even lift his eyes to the heaven, knowing how unworthy he was, who left justified. And not just Luke, the whole Bible. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. John 1, 12, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave to be, uh, the right to become children of God. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And because of that, we don't play favorites with ethnicity or race or class or gender or social economic status, education, or even varying degrees of sin. We indiscriminately proclaim the gospel to everyone. And Zacchaeus getting saved was absolutely outrageous in that culture. But it's outrageous that any of us get saved. And how is this possible? How can whoever receive Christ be saved? Well, because God is God and Isaiah even describes him as mighty to save Hebrews says, consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through Christ. And Paul says this, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings, he reigns triumph over sin and death. He's conquered the grave. Now he offers that gift of eternal life to anyone. Second point, transformation leads to scheming to bless other people. Now, I still think about Fred's sermon on the dishonest manager. That's actually where I got it from. I may have been shoehorning this point into the passage because I think the dishonest manager was a little bit more calculated in what he was doing, whereas here Zacchaeus was uh, more spontaneous in what he was going to do. Hey, half of my goods, and I'm going to pay everybody back the highest penalty. But I do think the underlining principle of helping others still applies here. Because when Zacchaeus finally sees Jesus, not just with his eyes, but with the eyes of his heart, he's able to see the poor, and the needs of others. It changes the way you think and reorients our lives and how we use our resources. Changes our priorities. And there are other ways to scheme to bless people. You know, I think a, a Travis Austin, 
who organizes these camping trips for the men. Like, I would never be able to pull something like that off. So he, he finds this place. He organizes. He has an itinerary. He rallies the troops. And we go out to Joshua Tree. And we just have this weekend of great fun and fellowship and food. He's scheming to bless other people. And it's been great. I've taken my son every time. It's bonding between me and my son, bonding with other men at church. And he facilitated all that. I think of the Litzows. I think of the Litzows. When we were in our adoption process, uh, trying to adopt Gabriel, Jason and Melanie had gone through and said, hey, we did this fundraiser at Savers. We know how to set it up. We'll do it for you. Why don't you just show up? And they did everything. They rallied the troops. I remember it was a Saturday morning, and it rained that, that morning. And I'm thinking, man, is anybody going to show up? And sure enough, many of you people did. And with his comments of like, oh, I, I was waiting for a good reason to clean out my garage. This isn't a better one. Bring your stuff, donating, and part of the proceeds coming to us to be able to bring home Gabriel. That's scheming to bless other people. I'll never forget that day. A picture of how the church came together to bless one another and uplift each, each other. I remember years ago, Eric Tonis uh, said he had this book of illustrations and that he had so many in the church that he got rid of the book. And I remember thinking, oh, man, how come he didn't give it to me? I probably could have used that. But as I spend more time in the church, yeah, I get what he's saying. You know, I think I study passages and I see personifications of these principles here at this church. Finally, see Jesus as your treasure. See Jesus as your treasure. So Zacchaeus stands in contrast with the rich young ruler in chapter 18. The rich young ruler left Jesus because he had great possession and great wealth, not recognizing that he was standing in front of the greatest treasure of all. And on the other hand, Zacchaeus saw the treasure that is Jesus. And that's why it was so easy for him to let go of earthly goods. This radical change has taken place in Zacchaeus' priorities. He recognizes that he's talking to the pearl of great price and he was willing to give away his possessions in an act of love, devotion, and repentance because he was in the presence of Christ. And Zacchaeus doesn't divest himself of all his possessions, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him for keeping half, but he pronounces blessing and benediction to him. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. And it's because Jesus knew Zacchaeus' heart and how he was going to use his wealth for his glory and his kingdom. God wants godly, wealthy people. Not in a, a prosperity gospel type of way for its own sake and some sort of sign of God's favor on you. No. I pray that many of you would become entrepreneurs, philanthropists, wealthy business people, and use your wealth to start Christian schools, to give to Christian schools that remain orthodox and refuse to bow to the secular regime and to become generous tithers here at this church. And Zacchaeus, his whole life, presumably his adult life, he had been a traitor to the household of Israel. He's the oppressor of his people, and in the moment of confession, he becomes a true son of Abraham by faith. He demonstrates that Jesus transforms lives, and in that moment, what did Zacchaeus see? Well, he saw that Jesus was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities or rulers. 
For all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things holds together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Because in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and taking this rich Christological truth that we would be encouraged in our hearts, knit together in love to know the full riches of assurance and understanding in the mystery of God, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And he beholds the universe by the word of his power. Because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Zacchaeus saw the only glory from the son, from the father, full of grace and truth. You know this word in John 1, the Greek word is logos. Where we get our English word uh, logic, it's a concept of rationality, sensibility, coherency, intelligibility. C.S. Lewis once said that I believe in Christianity as I see the sun risen. Not that I see it, but by it, I see everything else. What is Lewis talking about? Well, he's talking about when Jesus is at the center of your life, things just make sense. And isn't that true? Of those of us who've experienced it, Jesus at the center of your life brings understanding, wisdom, sensibility, sobriety, clarity. And now Zacchaeus not only sees Jesus, but he's received him joyfully, embraced him, committing his life to him. And afterwards, getting tangled up in this life that he didn't know how to get get out of, he knew exactly what to do. And treasuring Christ provides us an opportunity to exceed what we otherwise could not have done without Jesus. Becoming alive, to mature, to grow, to flourish as human beings. To be blessed with the clarity of vision into the true and tragic nature of the human condition. And Christ has given us so much more than that. He's transferred us as enemies to friends. And the Father delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And now we're, in, we're immersed in this grandest and most complex pursuits, the greatest adventure in human history, the glorification of God in the sanctification of our souls, in the building up of his church. And slowly and patiently, we savor these pleasures of great discoveries, this experience when different ideational fragments suddenly slide smoothly into coherence. We begin to see clearly We let go of old self-defeating patterns. We detach ourselves from ancient grievances. We develop this zest for living. We start to, to serve others with passionate joy and delight, all rooted and grounded in this desire to see God glorified because when we treasure Jesus, the things of this world grow strangely dim. So in conclusion, if you've never seen this Jesus that I'm talking about, well, let today be the day of salvation. And after this service, there'll be people here that will be willing to pray with you and talk to you. Come to me, I'll pray with you and talk to you. Don't leave without knowing this Jesus. And for the Christian, let us seek to see Jesus as our treasured Savior, scheming to bless other peoples, knowing that we are the wealthiest people alive because we have the greatest treasure of all, Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness. 
may we see you all the more clear. And we pray in Christ's name.